BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, podcast friends, and welcome to the latest Bill Press Pod. So my advice is be careful walking through any bookstore these days. You might get crushed by an avalanche of new books on the Trump presidency, how he got elected, how he got away with all the evil things he did, and how he refuses to just disappear. But of all these books, two of them, in my opinion, stand out because they go beyond the mechanics of how Trump campaigned and governed to what it says about this country that he was able to get elected in the first place. First of those books, Last Best Hope by The Atlantic's George Packer, who joined us on the Bill Press Pod last week. The second is The Cruelty is the Point by this week's guest and another Atlantic writer, Adam Serwer, also a frequent contributor to MSNBC. Among political journalists, Adam Serwer stands out as the first reporter to debunk the common wisdom that Trump got elected because of economic anxiety among voters. No way, insists Serwer. Trump got elected because he appealed to the not-so-hidden white nationalist agenda of millions of Americans. And that's why he remains so popular among his base today. Serra's new book is a provocative, sober, and I believe fundamentally sound analysis of American politics today, which, in today's podcast, you can now judge for yourself. Adam Serra, thank you so much for joining us here, and welcome to the Bill Press Pod. Thank you so much for having me. Well, so yeah, so good to have you here. And um, look, with a podcast, you know, you don't have a lot of time. Uh, and you are such a prolific writer and such a good writer uh, and profound writer, I believe. We can't possibly cover all that you've written lately, but I'd like to get to kind of three points. You know, one is some of the general themes you talk about, and two is some of the, a couple of the particular essays that struck me in, in your book, The Cruelty is the Point, and then a couple of comments at the end about critical race theory, if that's okay with you. So let's start with the general theme, Adam. What really struck me is your contention that the election of Donald Trump in 2016 was not, as many people posit, an aberration, but really a reflection of who we are as Americans. Tell us about that. I think in some ways, due to his personality. Uh, he, he seems sui generis. But the truth is, is that since the founding, Americans have been fighting with each other over who is entitled to the blessings of American democracy. And Donald Trump represented um, ideological currents that have long argued that certain people should be excluded from those blessings, that those blessings are really only truly belong to uh, conservative white Christians. He didn't come up with that. That's something that has been in existence since the founding. The, the founders, of course, declared all, that all men were created equal. What they really meant by that was white men who owned property. Many Amer millions of Americans didn't have the right to vote. 
uh, black men didn't have the right to vote until the 1860s. Women didn't have to vote until the 20th century. And because of Jim Crow, black people in general, really, we, we only really began this fragile experiment with multiracial democracy that we've had since 1965. Only then was America fully uh, a country for all its people on paper. So mm -hmm. it was a bit strange to say, you know, as many liberals did in the aftermath of the 2016 election, uh, you know, this is not who we are. Well, no, it's a part of who we are. It's not the it's not all we are, obviously, uh, but it is genuinely a part of the American tradition and the American idea and has been a source of conflict between those who have wanted to expand the ideals of the Declaration of Independence to everyone in the United States and those who have wanted to restrict it to a select few. Uh, and as a result of that, you also point out that while Donald Trump may be he himself, right, gone from the Oval Office, that Trumpism has not gone away and is not likely to go away, correct? You know, obviously the book title is The Cruelty of the Point, and most people think of cruelty as an individual problem, and it is that, you know, as part of human nature, everybody's capable of cruelty. Uh, but what I'm focused on is cruelty as a part of politics, and specifically what I said earlier, the way it's used to demonize certain groups so you can just justify denying people their basic rights under the Constitution and exclude them from the political process. I mean, one example of this is, you know, Thomas Jefferson arguing that black people are intellectually uh, inferior to white people and incapable of the same higher thought processes that white men are, which, of course, justifies their enslavement. And currently, our system incentivizes this because uh, the structure through uh, gerrymandering, Senate malapportionment, the Electoral College, allows one party to hold power without winning a majority of the votes. So it becomes more urgent to persuade uh, you know, this one group that they're on the verge of destruction. And so everything they do to prevent that is justified. That's how you end up with attempting to disenfranchise rival constituencies, Muslim bans, laws attacking trans children, stuff like mm -hmm. that. It's because these acts of cruelty become not simply you know, acts of self-defense, but sort of acts of heroism against this tide of apocalypse that is imminent. And you can see this in Donald Trump's rhetoric. I'm the only thing standing in between you and annihilation. And it's just not true. I mean, you know, th there's always going to be people with conservative views on immigration, on religion, on economics. But what we have had in our history is periods when people are excluded from the franchise, are excluded from the political process because of who they are. And you can see that political project continuing, even though Donald Trump is gone. So, so Trump is hiding behind maybe this myth of economic anxiety that most of the media, as you point out, bought into through his campaign and the early time of his presidency. Was it Charlottesville that ripped the mask off and maybe George Floyd that showed that it's really a lot deeper than that and really is systemic historic racism? So I would I would say it was earlier. Look, I think one of the ways this argument gets confused is people conf conflate genuine economic grievance with the response to that grievance. Mm -hmm. So the Obama administration response to the Great Recession was genuinely inadequate. The stimulus was not big enough. They did not work hard enough to keep people in their homes. They let the banks get away with too much. But it does not follow from that that the answer is to separate families or ban Muslims from traveling to the United States. If you look at the, the incredible racial disparities and the impact of the Great Recession, most of the people who were deeply hurt by it disproportionately were people who voted against Donald Trump in 2016. That is, they were Black and Latino voters to whom Trump's solutions did not appeal because they targeted them. And so it's not, it's not enough to say that Obama's response to the Great Recession was insufficient and left a lot of people suffering. What's necessary is an ideological lens that allows you to view that suffering 
as the fault of another group who must then be crushed because that will then end your suffering. And so I think from the beginning, it was clear that it was not, in my view, economic anxiety, even though some of the people who voted for Trump framed their arguments in economic terms or justified their vote in economic terms. The existence of a given problem or a given grievance does not necessarily justify the pursuit of a specific solution. I think that's clear to everyone, but I think sometimes it gets mixed up. To say that struggling economically makes you racist is, in my view, an extremely classist view. I mean, when you look at, you know, if that was true, the planner class of the Confederacy could never existed because they were certainly not economically anxious, even though they obviously had an economic interest in slavery. They were racist and white supremacists because that provided them with an ideological justification uh, for the use of slave labor to make themselves rich. It's not simply enough to say, well, I had a hard time or I lost my house um, and or, or somebody lost their house. So they voted for Donald Trump. A lot of people who lost their homes or whose homes went underwater uh, did not decide that a Muslim ban was the answer to their problems. Uh, and in fact, you point out and include in the book the actual numbers of, of uh, low income voters that Hillary Clinton got versus uh, Donald Trump and prove that point, you know, with the actual results from the election. Adam, I thought I knew a lot about American history, but I, <laughs> I learned a lot from your book. Uh, one of the things I Oh, thank you. It's about a guy named Madison Grant. I had never heard of Madison Grant, but he and David Duke, but particularly Grant, uh, is a precursor uh, of Donald Trump in terms of preaching white genocide. Madison Grant's a very interesting figure because he's been kind of memory hold. I mean, if yeah. you're a hardcore white supremacist, you know who he is. As I, I guess I'm it. not. I'm glad I'm not. <laughs> right. but, <laughs> but as I mentioned in the book, Richard Spencer uh, wrote like an intro to Madison Grant's The Passing of the Great Race. And what you got to understand about Grant is he's this guy who just came up, he, he sort of synthesized all these like racist ideas that were circulating in, in the 19th century and 20th centuries and said basically that the accomplishments of all all Western civilization were due to Northern Europeans who were also the, quote, native stock of Americans. And therefore, the new European immigrants who are coming over, you know, largely you know, Mediterranean, Italian, Greek, Jewish, Armenian, these, these people were of inferior genetic stock, and they were going to annihilate yeah. the original pure white stock of uh, America right. and therefore destroy its capacity for self-governance. Now, this probably sounds familiar to you at this point, both as you know uh, what you might hear on Fox News at night, but also because you know this philosophy uh, and what he called it was race suicide because the term genocide hadn't been coined yet. This was you know mm. in the nineteen mm -hmm. in the teens and twenties, so you know the Holocaust had not happened. The term genocide was not. Uh, yet coined. But this uh, Grantian idea that immigration erases the, the stock of pure white inhabitants from whom the country's greatness stems um, is the precursor to the white racist white genocide conspiracy theory, which you can sometimes hear laundered um, or attempted. You can, you can sometimes hear conservative intellectuals attempting to launder it in nicer terms, such as, and nicer obviously as relative, such as when Tucker Carlson said that Democrats want to import more obedient third world voters as if people, mm -hmm. uh, you know, not white people are more obedient than white people. It's extraordinary. And by extraordinary, of course, I mean extraordinarily racist. Rand, of course, he was influential in the sense that he helped design the immigration laws in the 20s that restricted Asian and African immigration and uh, immigration from Southern and Eastern European countries as a way to keep out Mediterranean and Jewish immigrants. And he was a big influence on the Nazis um, right, when, they were, right. when they were developing their theories of, of, of racist citizenship and the, the sort of 
white supremacist uh, civilization that they wanted to build. And so, you know, he's Grant has been kind of memory hold in part because, you know, the United States then went to war against Nazi Germany. And that sort of twisted reflection of, you know, these ideas that have become popular in America, which merged with, you know, centuries of anti-Semitism in Europe, it, it manifesting in this horrific genocide. You know, we memory hold that because we didn't want to think about our ideological contribution to that. And there were distinctions. I mean, here in the United States, white supremacists wanted, you know, what's called a heron-voke democracy. They wanted a democracy where white people could vote and non-whites were were subordinate citizens. They didn't want to live in in, in a European-style fascist society. But nevertheless, you know, that idea, again, it's a manifestation of what I was talking about. This The the contradiction of the founding that says, you know, all men are created equal, but then, uh, you know, restricts those rights uh, to white men with property. Right. And uh, Isabel Wilkerson in Cast also talks about uh, the influence of America's um, racist laws and movement uh, on the Nazis and how they looked at them for ideas of, of laws that they might write. Adam, let me ask you, to what extent has the Black Lives Matter movement, do you think, woke up America and maybe um, instituted some frank ad- admission about our racist past and uh, a willingness to deal with it? Black Lives Matter accomplished something extraordinary, which is that they're the most popular civil rights movement uh, in the history of the United States. The actual civil rights movement was not that popular at the time, even though we all remember it as a heroic movement. The New York Times reported that the protests that occurred after the George Floyd uh, murder were you know, maybe the biggest in American history. Uh, and now, of course, we're dealing with a backlash. We're dealing with a backlash in part because the Democrat is president now. Donald Trump's gone. And, and you know, one of the effects of that, uh, what political scientists call thermostatic public opinion, is that there is a uh, reaction against the party in the White House. And to some extent, even though Black Lives Matter would not associate themselves with the Democrats, they are associated uh, with the left. And therefore, um, there is a certain amount of backlash against them. Also, because there's been a rise in homicides that is being, in my view, unfairly blamed on Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Since, you know, the policy changes that they wanted weren't actually implemented. Right. But there wasn't. I think there was an, a kind of a moment where people's understanding of systemic racism genuinely expanded. Um, I don't know what the long-term implications of that will be, and I don't know if the political possibilities of the moment are given um, the narrow majorities that Democrats have in both houses, uh, I don't know that that will be reflected in policymaking. But, and I also think to some extent that recognition was limited to a certain segment of the country. So I'm not sure what the long-term effects will be, but uh, certainly, you know, just even in by what it accomplished, it was one of the more successful protest movements we've seen in American history. Again, here on the Bill Press Pod today, our guest is Adam Sower from The Atlantic. You see him a lot on, uh, often on MSNBC as well. Adam's new book, The Cruelty is the Point, the Past, Present, and Future of Trump's America. Uh, Adam, a collection of essays, some of them already published in The, uh, in the Atlantic, some that are new for the, for the book. I want to ask you particularly about two of them quickly. One, you call it The Nationalist's Delusion. Uh, where you explain how uh, people can say, oh, no, I'm not a racist. And yet, and you went out and talked to a lot of them, and yet they voted for a racist and support his racist policies. How do they square that? 
basically this is a piece I wrote, you know, after I went out to a bunch of Trump rallies. And I specifically asked people, you know, what do you think about things that Trump says about Muslims, about Latinos? And people would often say, I don't think he meant it like that. Or they'd say, you know, he's not a politician. He doesn't speak so smoothly. But then they'd, or they'd scold him and say, I don't think he should use that kind of language. But then they'd say that they supported whatever discriminatory policy that he was advocating. And, and what I argue in the piece is that this kind of cognitive dissonance is necessary because we, uh, again, this goes back to, uh, you know, American ideals say that all people are created equal. So how do you how do you justify mm -hmm. treating people unequally? You have to figure out a rationalization, a way around it. Um, and this is something very old. I mean, the the one of the examples I give in the piece is Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy. Uh, you know, at the beginning of the war, he he gives a speech saying, "Oh, the cornerstone of Confederate society is that the African is not equal to the white man." And at the end of the war, he's you know he's in prison and he's writing in his diary and and he's saying, you know, that speech I didn't give that speech. That speech was fake news. I told the reporter that he was wrong. <laughs> And, uh, you know, the crooked media smeared me. And I actually don't have any problem with black people, despite having waged war against, you know, my own country to protect the authority uh, of, of some people to hold other people in bondage and perpetuity. This is like a very old psychological mechanism for telling oneself that you're not departing from American values while you're doing that. These are, these are not people, you know, for the most part, it's like Donald Trump said, you know, I'm the least racist person you've ever met. They don't think of themselves as racist, even when they're doing racist things or supporting discriminatory policies. And so that piece is basically about how you, how people justify uh, supporting racist actions while telling themselves that they're not being racist at all. But clearly you're not asserting that all 74 million people who voted for Donald Trump are racist, or are you? I think that they're the people who subsume their entire right political identities into Donald Trump are in a different category for people who, you know, held their nose and voted for him. I'll put it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I can see people saying, you know, I do, I am completely anti-abortion and there's no way I could vote for a pro-life candidate. Or I could see someone right. saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm Latino and I don't like what Donald Trump says about Latinos, but I like the $1,200 check that I got at the beginning <laughs> of the pandemic. Right. But someone who goes to these Trump rallies and cheers when Donald Trump says to black and Latino congressmen that they need to go, women that they need to go back where they came from, or that they need to be locked up, or that they need to be deported. That's just racist. And I, and I try to describe actions rather than people as racist, because I think it makes more sense. Anybody's, you know, capable of prejudiced actions. But, you know, I think there is a distinction between the marginal Trump voter and the one who, you know, uh, wanted to wear a MAGA hat every day to show everybody who they were. So did the media get it wrong? You alluded to this a little earlier, or did they want to get it wrong because they themselves were looking for some excuse. I think there's an important distinction between what people, what individual voters might think and what Donald Trump himself represents. If you, you know, if, if, if you go back to like 1932, uh, you know, black people in the North voted for Roosevelt, who was uh, the candidate of the Democratic Party, which was the candidate of, which was the party of Jim Crow. Uh, now, are those voters voting for Jim Crow? No. But is the Democratic Party still the party of Jim Crow? Is it still a white supremacist organization? The answer is yes. And in the same sense, you know, it, it does not follow that because Donald Trump, say, won some more Latino votes this time around than he did in 2016, that he ceases to represent what he represents or his policies cease being discriminatory or racist simply because um, some people decided that those uh, things were not deal breakers for them. 
So one of the um, other pretty provocative pieces that I that I felt in the book was your um, essay about uh, the title is abolish police unions. Pretty strong stuff. I mean, you say that these guys consider the people that they're supposed to protect as a lot of them as outlaws and criminals who deserve deserve what they got, particularly victims of police abuse. Well, what I actually try to do is I focus on the structure of policing unions in that piece. So what I say is that the organizations condition officers to think of themselves as uh, soldiers at war with the public. because, And that's just based on what the police unions themselves say. It's not about the individual virtue of police officers. I know that there are a lot of people who go into policing because they want to go into public service. They want to help the community. Um, but what my focus on is in the piece is the uh, negative feedback loop that is created by police unions that because unions advocate for their workers and that's the job of unions that's what they're supposed to do but what's unique about police unions is, is that police are given the authority by the by the state to use lethal force against uh, individual american citizens um, and that creates a different kind of incentive structure where the unions now have an interest in ensuring that police can use force with impunity against the very people who they're supposed to protect. And that's a real problem because unlike other workers, that use of lethal force represents a much greater source of authority than simply, you know, if you're a teacher's union and you, and, and you want higher pay or better benefits. To be able to advocate for the use of that authority without a restraint means attacking the very public who you're supposed to defend. You have to say, and this is how you end up with guys like the Minnesota police, the head of the Minnesota police union saying that Black Lives Matter is a terrorist movement and George Floyd was a criminal who deserved to die. Because to defend that authority, you have to say that police officers are constantly in danger uh, from the public. Uh, and, and therefore, any kind of accountability that they have for the, the force that they use is going to make the public less safe. An extension of that is, unfortunately, is that when police are not accountable for their misuse of force, the community ceases to trust them. So you have a problem <laughs> where the very communities that are suffering from high crime do not trust the police because the police can use force with impunity and therefore they are particularly against the people in those communities and therefore those communities cannot trust them. And this is why you see such a low clearance rate for homicides. Um, is that the the, they can, the police cannot communicate with the community in order to find out who the actual dangerous people are to prevent uh, those kinds of that, that kind of violence from occurring. But worse than that, within the police departments themselves, officers who witness abuses because of the protections that unions have right. given these officers, officers who who witness you know a guy who steals something. Um, from someone who calls the police, who plants evidence on someone, who uses excessive force on someone. If they go and say, you know, this person, you know, really broke the law or broke the rules, um, that person is not actually going to be fired. What's going to happen is the person who blew the whistle will become a pariah within their department. They, uh, you know, the other officers will not come when they call for backup. They will be ostracized. There's very little reason to speak up about misbehavior because that person won't be punished and you will, in fact, be the one. The person who spoke up is the one who's going to get punished. So you have this like double negative feedback loop on the outside uh, mm -hmm. where the police are less trusted to solve crime because they are not accountable to the public who is particularly those who are suffering from high, high crime. And then within the department, Police officers who misbehave are never held accountable because the system that currently exists protects those who engage in misbehavior and uh, punishes those who 
blow the whistle on misbehavior. So you have both an, <laughs> an internal and external systemic problem that simply cannot be solved by good intentions. It doesn't matter how good of a police officer you want to be in a situation like that. That is a system that is designed to produce bad apples. And there's, there's simply no way around that under the way the police unions currently work. Right. Uh, you sum it up, I thought, uh, very effectively uh, in that essay where you said this is not a system that with, a, with just a few bad guys, this is a system uh, that creates bad guys, unfortunately. Again, our guest today, Adam Serwer. You uh, read him in The Atlantic. You see him on MSNBC. His new book, The Cruelty is the Point, the Past, Present, and Future of Trump's America. Adam, before we let you go, I would love to get your take on critical race theory. We'll take a quick break and be back in just a second here. Hi, friends. You know, lately uh, we've been asking you to uh, give your support to some of the great grassroots organizations uh, that are making such a difference in American politics today. And today we bring you another one. It's called the Sunrise Movement. No doubt you've heard of it. They are the leading voice now for climate change in this country, even though they've only been around since 2017. They self-describe as a youth movement for climate change worldwide and creating millions of good jobs in the process. Not a bad goal. They've already had, as I say, a serious impact on American politics. And of course, climate change has a serious impact, particularly among low-income people and people of color. The Sunrise Movement is sponsoring a big National Day of Action coming up on July 15. So I encourage you to go to their website, find out what they're all about, lend them your support, and maybe even send them a little extra financial help. Their website is sunrisemovement.org. All one word, sunrisemovement.org. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back on the Bill Press Pod today. Our guest, Adam Serwer, his new book, a very provocative, very powerful, very sobering new book, The Cruelty is the Point, the Past, Present, and Future of Trump's America. So, Adam, just by having this discussion of uh, the history of systemic racism in this country, and particularly reflected in the administration of Donald Trump, you and I will, of course, be accused of not only espousing but propagating critical race theory, or CRT. Uh, so, uh, to which I wonder, what the hell is it? How widespread is it? And is it really like a danger to admit our past? I think there's, there's critical race theory, and there's, in scare quotes, critical race theory. And, and the first <laughs> yeah. is sort of, <laughs> the first is sort of, a, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a school of thought that explores how racial disparities can persist even in the presence of equality on paper. And then there's critical race theory in scare quotes, which is basically an umbrella term for any discussion of how uh, racial disparities were produced by government policy and how racism continues to affect American life. 
and I think you can see the backlash against critical race theory is largely a result of the latter. Yeah. In particular, you know, I, I would say that this kind of started around 2014, 2015. You know, Barack Obama was president, and you know, we had the protests in Ferguson, and people were trying to figure out how is it that we have a black president, and yet we have these tremendous racial disparities. How does racism continue to still be such an important part of American life? Examining how American public policy has created these racial disparities uh, necessarily creates an obligation on the part of the citizenry to rectify them through some sort of state action. Uh, And I think if you're conservative, you think that kind of state action is unjust and you don't think it should happen and that these disparities are probably uh, largely, if, if not entirely, the result of natural differences in ability. So you want to tamp down any argument that suggests that the state has an obligation to rectify racial disparities. In fact, you might even call that racist because you, it, 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 it requires a consciousness of racial difference and how policies affect people differently on the basis of race. And I think that's really what we're arguing about to some extent. You know, I, I mean, I see some of these sort of silly things from like these job trainings, these like silly charts or whatever that say that seem like, you know, 90s comedy routines where they're like, white people do this like this and black people do this like this. <laughs> like, obviously, that stuff is pretty stupid. But, you know, when we're talking, like I said, you know, America was not not a democracy for all its people on paper until 1965. That's fairly recent. That's within a lot of people's lifetimes. It's within my parents' lifetimes. And so, you know, there are necessarily racial disparities that stem from a deliberately stratified society on the basis of race. And there are some people who obviously do not want those disparities addressed for whatever reason. And, and you know, it's a free country. They're entitled to that position. But I think that's ultimately what this is about, regardless of, of what everybody says it's about. It's about d- whether or not we are going to deal with these racial dispar- disparities using the inter- state intervention or whether or not we're just going to let them linger. Uh, and isn't politically... Uh, on the part of uh, the far right, isn't this just one more attempt to seize on some phrase that will change the subject, basically, like cancel culture, right, uh, a couple of months ago, uh, rather than deal with reality? Well, look, you know, there's no question that, like, the Internet has made it possible to track our behavior in such a way that it exposes us to a much wider volume of criticism than, you know, it might have in a different era. But I think critical race theory has emerged as a boogeyman largely because Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama are gone and conservative politics is increasingly organized around a particular kind of white identity politics. Uh, and mm. because the president is old white Catholic Joe Biden, who really, you know, he doesn't use that kind, he doesn't even talk in that kind of like uh, lefty activist academic speak. He is a, he's not a compelling villain for the American right. And so they've come up with this idea of critical race theory, which they present as a sort of photo negative of white supremacy as a way to continue firing up their base and give them a sense that somehow, you know, the tables are about to be turned and white people are about to be oppressed the way that black people have uh, been discriminated against in the past. Uh, you mentioned Joe Biden. How do you assess, look, we're only five months in, right? So we have to be careful. But how do you assess his dealing with these issues, particularly the ones that we've, we've talked about? Is, is he on the right track? Does he understand it? Or is he going too, too slow? I think that Joe Biden did a very good job with the stimulus, but there was a lot of overhyped coverage about an FDR-sized presidency that really didn't pan out. Joe Biden has yet to pass a permanent 
expansion of the welfare state. I mean, when you look at what Barack Obama did, even though many of us were very frustrated that he didn't go farther, particularly on economic stimulus, when you look at Obamacare, that, that was a massive expansion of the American welfare state. And it is, you know, in particular, the Medicaid expansion has uh, extended health care coverage to millions and millions of the most vulnerable people in the country. Joe Biden has yet to do anything of that size. Uh, and perhaps he will. Uh, you know, it, 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 I think it would be great if he did. I don't think he's doing a bad job so far. I don't uh, see him as being anything close to an FDR style presidency, not simply in terms of policy, but in terms of reordering American political economy towards working people. We're also not yet a year in, so we'll see what happens. Right, exactly. Adam Sir, I must say I have long admired your work. I admire it even more having read your book, The Cruelty is the Point. Thank you so much, Bill. And thank you so much for spending some time with us today on the Bill Press Pod. Thanks for having me. And that's it for today's uh, podcast with Adam Sir. Again, the name of the book, The Cruelty is the Point, the past, present, and future of Trump's America a real eye-opener for all of us, even us, uh, those of us who follow politics so closely. And there'll be a link to purchase the book in the episode notes for today's podcast. So that's it for today. We'll be back next with our roundtable with three of Washington's top political reporters. In the meantime, enjoy this long, extended July 4th break. Take good care of yourselves, and we'll look for you on the next edition of the Bill Press Podcast.